Purple elephant shower thought of the day. If two people are on opposite sides of the world and they each drop a piece of bread, the earth briefly becomes a sandwich. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. Today's guest uh, describes herself as an adventurous dreamer. She has 10 years of experience in the food industry, and she has been building a company called Mighty Cricket, which offers delicious meals, snacks, and supplements made with next-generation proteins. And maybe the, the title gives away what uh, what is included in those proteins, and we'll get into that a little bit. But uh, I want to welcome... Sarah Schlafly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. I always like to start off these kind of interviews because I don't know you too well. I kind of want to hear your backstory. Before we get into Mighty Cricket and what Mighty Cricket is doing, I kind of want to hear your journey up to your current venture. All right. How far back do you want me to start? <laughs> Let's start at the 10-year the mark of the being in the food industry. Where does that journey begin? All right. So that began... Um, I guess right when I graduated college, I got a degree in accounting and I got a part-time accounting a job. I didn't really like it. Um, not that creative, not that interesting. So on the side, I started teaching cooking classes and specifically nutrition cooking because I've always been into that. And I really enjoyed that. Um, so pretty quickly, I made the switch to pursuing that. And I started a nutrition and cooking school in North Carolina. And I taught all sorts of people from, um, you know, very well off all the way down to people at the poverty line. And one of my focuses was trying to get all people of all income levels to eat healthily. It was really hard to do that with protein because the inexpensive protein sources at the markets are pretty unhealthy. So industrialized meat <clears throat> has um, taken a toll both on the health of the animals, but also the health of the, those who eat it. And then um, the alternatives to that were lots and lots of soy. So I went on this journey searching for the perfect protein source that I could find at an inexpensive price point and then um, get people to love to consume it. Well, I found it in all things in edible insects. And the only challenge is that it's so unappetizing. I didn't want to eat insects. People in the US don't want to eat insects. And so um, I started this journey figuring out how to make it appetizing and then figuring out the right marketing messages to get people to adopt this widespread because if we can get edible insects to go mainstream, they'll drive down the price to that on par with pea protein or soy protein. And that's really exciting because this is a really powerful source of nutrients, complete protein, 
vitamin B12, which we're all deficient in, in the U.S., causing lots of problems, especially with energy levels. And um, it's in a bioavailable form, more bioavailable than plant-based proteins. And uh, plant-based proteins, we have to, yeah, we have to, our bodies have to do some conversions in order to get us to use it. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask about that specifically because I was going to say, does it lean more towards an animal protein or more towards a plant protein? Because yeah, like I know with the omega-3s in plant proteins, you have to go through this huge conversion process and you're really only getting like, and I'm making this up, but like 1% of what a they kind of advertise. One, yeah. One, one ninth. ninth. Yeah. yeah. Still not a lot. Um, <laughs> so it is closer to that, that animal protein. And I think that's good for someone like myself. Cause for me, I look at it more in terms of like, what's more nutritionally beneficial for me. And I think when someone's kind of deciding to go vegan or, you know, whatever kind of health diet they're thinking about, I see it as kind of one of two ways of, you know, I want to help the world, you know, help the environment or do it for nutritional reasons. And I think I lean more towards the, I'm going to do something because it's going to help my body. But I think you kind of are able to get both sides of that equation with crickets. Um, yeah. Oh, you're right. Only 15% of Americans right now make purchasing decisions based on the environment. Yeah. And I think you said, uh, your kind of goal is to drive down the price of cricket protein, which is kind of step two to getting people to really uh, appreciate it and like it first. But that kind of second step will make it easier for people to choose that instead of whatever the other protein alternative is at the moment. Um, so I, as we, I, we're kind of back into Mighty Cricket and how that began. And I like that origin story because you've always had this kind of background in loving cooking and loving nutrition. And you mentioned you chose crickets because they just seem like the best alternative to kind of this horrible industrial meat. But I want to know what was your process for once you're like, crickets are great. How do you get to starting a business where you have, you know, cricket farms? And I think you call them something cool, like cricket condos, something along those lines I saw on your website. But how do you get to like establishing this this business, getting a, a supply of crickets and kind of creating that those systems? Well, for about a year, I had the idea not thinking that it was going to be very viable. Uh, <clears throat> I started experimenting with recipes and talking about the concept and testing recipes with friends and family and people at uh, St. Louis's Venture Cafe. And I realized two things. So the product, the the concept is inherently memorable and viral. And being a, a former, having marketing experience for a national food brand, I realized that those two attributes are really valuable to growing and scaling a brand. And because of these two, I thought that I'd be able to gain significant awareness and attention for it and be able to scale the company. So I um, started working on my minimal viable products and got those together and tested those in the market. Did a lot of, all in 2019, I spent the whole year testing messaging. So figuring out 
what type of phrases made it click for people that and I discovered that the number one thing people want is just to see have the products be presented in a delicious way. People first eat with their eyes. And so on our packaging, we have delicious bowls of oatmeal. Um, that was step one. And step two was, um, I lost my train of thought. You're good. <laughs> anyway, so the other thing I realized is people really don't care where their food comes from. We think we do. But when it comes down to it, we don't. And red food dye comes from insects. And so we're covering our M&Ms and Skittles and whatnot with insects already. Um, Hot dogs. People eat lots of hot dogs and they know, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's like gross. I don't even know what's in here. And people kind of make a joke about it. And when it comes down to it, we're still buying them and consuming them because it tastes good. That's really all, all that people care about. And then a pretty large percentage of people care about the nutritional value of the food. And so first it tastes good. Second, it has great nutrients. And then the bonus is the environmental factors. Yeah. Yeah. And I, in preparation for this episode, I remember reading a couple things a while back of like foods that were at one time considered unappetizing and now we just look at them as like a delicacy. Specifically, uh, there was an article from David Foster Wallace way back when about lobsters. And in the 1800s, and I'm, I'm reading off, I have it pulled up right now. Um, he wrote, lobsters were literally low-class food, um, eaten only by the poor and institutionalized. Even in the harsh in penal environment of early America, some colonies had laws against feeding lobsters to inmates more than once a week because it was thought to be cruel and unusual. Like that, that alone shows the potential for something that, you know, we may think is, is gross at one point, but our mindset can change and the product hasn't changed at all. Um, and I, I think crickets are going to be the biggest kind of case study for, of like this age, this day and age of how can we turn something that people considered gross and how can we make that mainstream? And so I'm curious, you said you had, you were kind of uh, talking about, okay, number one is presenting crickets in a delicious way. And I think you have uh, achieved that pretty well with, you know, we'll make it oatmeal based. Um, We'll have protein powders that are chocolatey and vanilla and kind of those things that people like and see similar products in the market. Is there another step to kind of making crickets mainstream? So Sean, I think of it in four ways. Um, And I I studied other food trends like the lobster, like sushi, even nightshade vegetables was considered taboo at one time. There are four different approaches that I, I saw when looking at these other food sources. One was uh, remaking it. So, you know, we remake crickets by milling them into a fine powder. You're not going to see whole bugs in our products. They're going to, it's a fine, fine protein powder. And then it's just blended undetected into other foods. So remaking the product form itself to gain widespread adoption. 
The second one is renaming it. <clears throat> now we are very literal in our name, Mighty Cricket. And we've gone through a lot of different other brand names. And for some reason, people always choose Mighty Cricket over whatever name I come up with. I'm not quite sure why that is, but there are some other insects that um, have a more gross name like mealworms. That sounds to me really disgusting. I wouldn't want to eat a mealworm, but I would eat it if it was called its Latin name, Melitos, which sounds delicious. So that's another way. Yeah. Well, because your logo itself is kind of inviting. You know, you show a cricket, but it's not, it's not, oh, it's a, a real cricket. It's like almost this cartoonish cricket that's inviting. And I think of it in a similar light of like the, the cow for Chick-fil-A. It's like... Mm, yeah. somewhat similar it's like oh yeah this is another animal but you know eat don't eat uh beef eat chicken instead or in that case um yeah we make it uh really cartoony to kind of in line with jiminy cricket you know really play down the fear factor of what a cricket could look like so that it, it's cute and it's approachable and it puts a face on something that is faceless so our little cricket is truly mighty um, but another way to gain widespread adoption is to leverage communities that are already accustomed to eating this food source. So um, Mexico, they eat crickets and grasshoppers all the time. And it's not a big deal at all. So, And we have a huge Hispanic population here in the U.S. I can tap into that for um, growing market share. And then lastly, going to influencers. And this is... Um, Another way that sushi became popular was it became really attractive to Hollywood stars. And so if we if we can get Hollywood and even micro influencers on board, then people trust their opinions and they won't be like them. So they'll start eating like them. And in the latest um, Avengers movie Endgame, at the beginning, they actually talk about going to a restaurant and eating some bugs on menu. So wow. that was very cool to see yeah. that it's already starting to gain um, appearances in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that will probably become more mainstream because it, it's almost like a slow to get rolling. But once it starts getting that momentum, then I think you'll probably see a lot of exponential growth and just people consuming crickets and insects. Um, but I heard you say, this was a little bit ago of some of your competitors not really saying, you know, cricket in the name. They're kind of beating around the bush in a sense. I'm curious, are there a lot of cricket protein powder companies out there right now? And how do you think you stand out um, in, in that niche? Well, all of the edible insect companies are, I consider them my collaborators mm -hmm. because the market's so small that if we collaborate, then we can grow the industry together. So we tend not to compete with each other. What the real industries we're competing with are the soy industry, maybe even the whey industry. Um, but there are kind of two camps. Most of the companies fall into the camp of really celebrating the insect and making that very forward in their marketing. I've seen some brands that take a very, a much more subtle approach to it, kind of like Mighty Cricket does, even though, like I said, Cricket isn't our brand name. 
It's kind of funny. People think of us like blue bunny ice cream. They don't think it's literally blue bunnies in their ice cream. Um, so we kind of hide it in plain sight in, in a way because, yeah, when they look at our packaging, there's nothing, nothing about it that screams this is different or mm-hmm. this is gross. Yeah. Yeah. And just from my perspective, looking at your website, I see kind of this um, outdoorsy kind of like the type of person who would go on this website and consume these products would be a person who loves to hike. And that's not a a person who's like, Oh, I am only on there because I love crickets. It's like this whole different, um, kind of hobby of hiking and being outdoorsy. That's the type of person that I see just looking at your website. Do you think that, that my perception of that, is that like a conscious thing that you've thought about? Um, yeah, our target customer is the outdoor enthusiast. Um, they tend to be triathletes, triathletes and uh, mountain bikers and rock climbers and very adventurous um, to start with. And then, you know, once we gain a strong support from that community base, then you just launch into more mainstream uh marketing messaging. Yeah. And so I'm curious, let's dive in a little bit into your specific marketing kind of ideas that you've done before ideas you're using on social media, whether it's social media or kind of more PR based, like being on radio shows, what are kind of the successes you've had that are marketing stunts? And I say that with air quotes, but just stuff that you've done, that's really, you've seen like a big jump in people adopting or trying the product after you did blank? Our biggest one was the cricket challenge, which we ran in 2019. We were able to get 50 restaurants to put a dish on their menu in St. Louis made with mighty cricket protein. And we got all the local news to cover it. TV, print, radio, it was, it was everywhere and every single one. It was awesome because um, we had this big push in the month of October and got a lot of buzz around it. And people remembered the brand when I was at um, vendor events and they would say, oh, weren't you in the newspaper or something? And so that type of, um, you know, already having made contact with that brand was very powerful for us. And we wanted to keep up that momentum and do it again in 2020 and 2021. And (laughs) we all know what happened in 2020 with the restaurant industry. So the momentum from, for the cricket challenge, really, um, it really nosedived there, (laughs) but I do hope to start it up again in 2022. Yeah. And I think, I, I kind of see that as the same way that um, Impossible Burger has done that, where you know they kind of get their burger in, and they don't they haven't made it as much of a challenge, but they get their burger into whatever restaurant. And what I like hearing from you is that you really embrace St. Louis and you really embrace being local. And you know I'm from St. Louis, and I think kind of targeting the local is way more. I mean, for something like crickets, where the the market share of the whole like protein industry is so low for it. It's nice to see you kind of hitting those local groups 
and then hoping to expand from there. And you're not like, yeah, we're going to make a meal, a menu item at McDonald's. It's like, no, we're focusing on these local chains. Again, going back to the social media, I really like that cricket challenge. And yes, obviously it, it sucks what happened with, um, COVID and it, it really has kind of put everything on hold. Have you had any successes since the pandemic doing any social media challenges or, or just like any type of content that you've posted that's like really kind of getting a lot of reception? Well, I started focusing on more uh, oatmeal bowl shots on Instagram. Whereas before I was doing a lot of packaging, I noticed that when I actually made, and food photography is hard. So this is why I kind of held off on doing it because I'm not a very good food photographer, but when I take the time to compose a really delicious looking shot, it does, it performs really well on Instagram. So I'm trying to uh, level up my skills <laughs> in doing that a little bit more. Um, Cause I think that, you know, people see that and they eat with their eyes and it's a lot more inspiring than just seeing my packaging sitting yeah. out in nature. Right. Uh, do you, can we talk a little bit about your, your team for Mighty Cricket? Is it you doing a, a big chunk of the work or do you have team members who are kind of have devoted activities? Um, so it, it ebbs and flows. I have interns that come on and do some work, usually um, pretty much all in marketing. And then uh, they cycle through. So I'm getting my next intern in May or June, I believe. It'll, I'll have a summer intern and they'll be focused on doing some marketing work and some sales um, sales activities. And then I have a really amazing graphic designer who works on my packaging for me. That's so great. Um, and speaking of, you said um, kind of focusing on the, the selling activity and marketing is the, the intern's job. Um, do you ever, is, is all your products sold online at the moment or do you have any distribution in um, grocery stores? Are you trying to get to that point? I'm in a few local stores right now and then Straub's um, is bringing Mighty Cricket on this year, which is exciting. I'm waiting to hear back from Schnucks and Deerbergs as well. And so, yeah, I'm starting to hit the retailers before I was thinking it would be only e-commerce, but um, it makes a lot of sense for to go the retail route and then export exporting my products. Um, I'm seeing a big opportunity in Mexico, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, and Vietnam. Okay. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, so you're kind of exploring all routes. And I think one thing I like, you obviously have this massive amount of marketing experience and, and food knowledge. And I think it's so nice to hear from you because I think you have so much um, wisdom to share. And one thing that I'm picking up from what you're saying is you're not stuck on one route. If something isn't working, you're going to adapt and find something that will. Um, you're not like, I'm only going to do e-commerce. You're finding those other routes to um, make more sales and get the, the word out that <laughs> crickets are a great source of protein. And I think that's the the message of your, your brand. Can we dive in a little bit more um, on the like 
sustainability side because um, I think that is kind of a, a huge part of cricket protein and a huge part of the, your brand. Um, so can you hit us with a little bit of statistical knowledge um, that that really makes cricket shine above all other protein sources? Sure. So when you look at pound for pound of protein, comparing beef to cricket, crickets require 1,200 times fewer water than beef. They require 12 times less feed and emit 2,000 times fewer carbon greenhouse gases. It's just such a powerful way to turn um, limited resources into food that we can eat. And um, in terms of land usage, crickets require about as much space as um, maybe pea protein or so, but you can grow crickets indoors in an urban setting and you can grow a thousand crickets in one cubic foot. And so the, the implications of this are pretty huge in that all of a sudden we have the opportunity to have a hyper local protein source for our city centers which is something that we don't really have in conventional proteins because um, to raise livestock takes a significant amount of land and to plant enough soybeans to get the protein we need from it also requires a significant amount of land. And so these have always done in rural areas, um, which means that our food miles are longer. And our food ecosystem is more fragile as a result. We saw with the pandemic that our food chain is really fragile. There are any disruptions to it and you have grocery store shelves going empty. Meanwhile, farmers are dumping eggs and milk because they can't sell it. Um, it's it's really, it, that was the most enlightening thing to see out of the pandemic was how fragile our food system is. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious, um, in, in your ideal future, what does the world of food look like? And we could focus on protein because that is kind of what the, the cricket protein mighty cricket is about. So let's say 2050, or you can, you can pick a year. Are people exclusively eating, crickets or is there a a world where potentially some sources of grass-fed beef or um, stem cell grown meat I don't know if you have dove too much into that I know I haven't um, but I know that is something that's coming up is there a world where there's kind of a balance between you know some sources of meat that's sustainably raised that the animals aren't mistreated like they're are with industrial uh, feedlots, is there a balance or do you think we got to go all in on crickets? I see a world where consumers are following the Ento diet and the Ento diet is the diet of eating for the world. Um, Most people choose their diets based on what kind of goals they want to achieve for themselves, how they want to look. Um, almost all diets are tailored to the individual dieter, but we're all connected. What we eat directly affects 
our neighbors and it even affects the people on the other side of the world um, because our food requires so many natural resources and they're just limited. Um, so the Ento diet is a diet in which people are eating the most sustainably while still getting the nutrition they need to live healthily. And so I see um, this diet can be, I see a lot of creativity going into it. Um, ways to grow food using methods that we've never used before, used very rarely. Um, and there are, there are ways to produce food, even, even conventional proteins in a way that doesn't destroy the planet. But we have to get more into, um, we have to move away from the mono cultures on the farms and have farms start producing a variety of different foods that um, help naturally feed each other and cross-pollinate. So, you know, aquaponics uses, um, there are these methods where there are fish beneath the plants and the plants are um, being fertilized by the fish poop. And then, um, uh, it's kind of like it, it goes in a circle. I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I haven't looked at how it is a cyclical, Yeah, how it, it's a loop yet. Um, I haven't looked at that in a while, but mm. you know, one yeah. feeds the other and the other feeds right. the other. So, And I'm curious, the Ento diet, I, I never heard that term. And I, that's such a cool um, phrase and a cool way of looking at diet. It's not just about the person. However, I think there's going to be huge um, kind of there needs to be this shift in the culture where people aren't focused on themselves and they are more focused on the environment. Because from what I see, I think a lot of people do care about the environment and no one's going to be like, yeah, I'm just going to trash the earth to trash the earth. But if someone's giving the choice between um, choosing something because it'll make them more attractive or it'll help the the planet i think as of right now a lot of the people are going to choose um kind of the the thing that's going to help them um do you a do you agree with that and b um how do you think like what is the marketing how does marketing going to shift that for um consumers yeah I do agree that people are going to choose themselves over the planet. Um, the thing is, though, it doesn't have to be a choice A versus B. It can be both. It might cost a little bit more right now up front because uh, more sustainable packaging and more sustainable foods are, um, it's more niche. So it just, it just costs a little bit more. But more and more consumers are willing to pay for that because they know that on the flip side of this, on, on the back end, it's going to cost way more to repair the damages than it is to prevent them from the first place. And so if you just have, you just pay 10 or 15% more for a food item that is more, is not only good for you, but also good for the planet, 
then you're getting the best of both worlds. And so the marketing I found, like I said, with you, you know, it can't be, you can't lead the message with this is good for the planet. You have to lead with this tastes delicious. Second, it's good for you. Third, it's good for the planet. And that's the uh, order in which American consumers make purchasing decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of starts with the instant gratification, then the delayed gratification, but it's selfish and then delayed gratification for the whole world. And I think. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I think you're probably on the path to, to doing that because you, you talked about a little bit before of, you know, the, the oatmeal looks delicious. Those photos, when you take the time to do them, they get way more reception. Um, but I want to transition just a little bit and I want to hear, let's dive a little bit further into your backstory and keep it focused on entrepreneurship and just kind of the, the conceptual idea of starting a business. Has that always been in your blood? Have you always been, um, have you always desired to be an entrepreneur? Cause you did start out as a accountant, which is crazy to me that you're doing all this amazing work and you started at a desk job as an accountant. So from your own personality, from what you pick up about yourself, um, was there a shift that you made or have you always kind of had this desire to start something yourself? It's always been there. I remember being 10 and brainstorming the first business I was going to open. Um, and I think that just came from being part of a family of entrepreneurs. So I always had that example set um, before me and it seemed very attainable. And then I, I just started... You know, in college, I wanted to take a very safe route and make sure I got a degree in something that if I ever needed to, I could fall back on. Um, but it, it just seemed worth it to me to take that leap of faith and try out something that I'd always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because can you talk a little bit more about the the first business that you started related to food? Like, what was that called and what was kind of, what did you sell? Was it... Um like courses or uh, recipe books or something along those lines? I sold, um, I sold instruction. Mm. So it was not online. It was in person, live instruction and one-on-one um, -on -one classes, group classes, and even large cooking events. I threw this, this big farm to table Oktoberfest one time and sold tickets to that on a farm and we brought in a live local band. So just various concepts like that. Um, and I traveled around teaching. I taught uh, corporate nutrition classes. Um, and it was really exhausting. <laughs> doing the type of work I was doing was not scalable. And so I wanted something that I could scale and make um, a larger impact with. And I was um, just towards the end getting tired and burned out. So I, the biggest takeaway I learned from that was that you don't have to constantly my theory with entrepreneurism is that you don't have to go all in. You don't have to put your life savings on the line or even do it full time. Um, 
because if you risk everything, it's very stressful. You're not going to enjoy the journey that much and as much, and um, you're going to burn out. And I wasn't risking everything, but I just had that mentality that I had to go all in or I wasn't a real entrepreneur. And that's what the messaging we hear on like shows like Shark Tank, you know, the sharks celebrate the entrepreneurs who go all in and they do that because they get a better bang for their buck, right? They're investors. They want their entrepreneurs to work to the bone, but I don't want to do that in my companies because I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs end up really despising their work and not even being motivated to continue the companies they started because they've lost that initial passion and spark they had for it. Mm. Um, no so I take a softer them. approach. Yeah. And a lot, of a lot of times that can be the case. I take a much softer approach. You know, I um, invested very little upfront in my company and, um, you know, there are pros and cons of that. I don't grow as fast, but I'm also okay with that. Um, I'm okay with taking it slow, especially because, this industry is in its infancy right now. So, you know, I'm not in any rush to grow the industry as fast as I can. I can kind of take my time with this one and wait for the industry to mature as I'm maturing and grow with the industry than rather trying to force the industry to grow because I personally have to grow so fast um, because I don't have the financial runway to make it, you know, a lot of companies operate on, um, you know, they have to be profitable in two years, otherwise they'll have to close. And right. so most of them close. Yeah. And so d does that mean that you're not working full-time doing mighty cricket at the moment? Or do you have a, another side thing that you're doing or is mighty it cricket? And flows. Okay. Yeah. Like, um, in 2019, I was working on full-time, um, in 2020, Right. When that was different. <laughs> everything just kind of stopped, I started taking on some um, side projects. And, um, you know, one of them I ended up working on significant, putting significant time onto that. And now that's, you know, things are starting to pick up. I'm hopping back over to Mighty Cricket. Um, but I kind of find that. A lot of when I'm working full time on the company, I do a lot of things that don't really move the needle. And when I only have a limited amount of time, I really focus all my time on like sales <laughs> and and getting doing the things that I really need to get done. And it's remarkable, like how having less time can sometimes move the needle needle further because when I am working on it full time, like I can go down these bunny trails and get off track, which is kind of um, an innovator I do all the time. I get, I'm so easily thrown off track with my own ideas and excitement. And so if I only have, you know, two hours a day, I'm to devote a mighty cricket, I'm going to spend that two hours on sales. Um, if I had eight hours, I might spend all eight hours on something else because like I started something in the morning and then six hours later, I'm like on a whole different track. <laughs> mm. And what does focusing on sales mean specifically? Does that mean cold calling, uh, 
retail outlets or something different? Cold calls, cold emails, trying to find warm introductions, um, digging through LinkedIn, just doing everything I can to make a sale, maybe going in person. I was, um, I went to REI and talked to the, the um, retail manager there. And unfortunately they don't make food buys locally, but it just so happened that the CEO of REI was coming in that day. He was on this big tour and he was like going to show up in five minutes. So I stuck around and ended up giving the CEO my chocolate bars. <laughs> I'm like, can you please pass this along to the food buyer? He said he would. So we'll see if um, that would I be hear from them. Amazing. <laughs> wow. So you've had, uh, I, I like what you said about sales is kind of the, the thing that you prioritize if you have to prioritize something. And I think maybe you could speak on that from a more general perspective, because I think for something like I'm doing right now of just producing a lot of content, producing a lot of uh, media and kind of discovering what it is that I could sell, would sell, what's worth selling. Um, and when I say that, I kind of think of myself as the, the generalized creative. Um, and it's like, I don't know if I'm going to go the route of producing courses to you know, how to start a podcast or something along those lines, or, um, you know, some type of education or clothing. And I don't know the exact route I'm going to go and I'm keeping myself open and I'm not really putting any money into this. You know, everything I'm doing is being produced for free essentially. But I wonder if you can speak to just creatives in general, how important is it to focus on monetization if if it's something like this where everything's kind of free essentially for this moment um, and everything's kind of being paid out of pocket but no real major debts, um, do you have any thoughts to speak on that? I do. Well, first of all, I know for creatives, they kind of struggle with like selling their soul. Um, <clears throat> it's not to make money off of your creativity is not selling your soul, but you do have to produce something that someone's going to want to pay for. So there are a lot of ways to do that. You know, not everything that you produce is going to hit exactly on what you're passionate about. For me, um, you know, my final oatmeal formulas are a little bit different than what I would eat as oatmeal but it's because most of the people um, in my target market like their food this particular way. Um, <clears throat> so you, you kind of have to, when it comes to selling, you have to be accommodating and it's not exactly selling your soul. Um, you have to sell something that you certainly believe in though. Uh, I think it's very hard to, for me, it's hard to sell something that I don't truly believe in. And I just am terrible at sales when I do that. <clears throat> but I would say in the discovery of what it is you're going to sell, there are two ways to go about it. You can do sales without, with only having like a mock-up and, or even do sales without having any product. You just do the marketing for it. And then when the, 
consumer or when the target audience is willing to open up their wallet, you just, if you're doing it online, you give them an error page or something so that you can see, oh, what is it that I could offer that's going to make the most money? But you don't have to produce all of it. You can just kind of fake it <laughs> and test out these different um, marketing messaging and products, really. Um, <clears throat> that's one approach. Another approach is to do some surveys. So for me, um, there are tons of different product forms I could put crickets into. Um, I did some surveys and figured out, you know, I had 20 different product ideas and figured out what the top five were. And from there, I saw what kind of fit in my startup budget and created some prototypes. So this is how I approached it. You know, I didn't completely fake it, um, the marketing and try to sell it. I actually made some prototypes and it was very bare bones, but I just wanted to see if people would be willing to buy it. <laughs> and I tested it out and it's like, yeah, people are willing to buy it. So then before I invested in my packaging, I started listening to, okay, what messaging really resonated with those people the most. And I used that to determine what I was going to put in my packaging before I even sunk any money into creative. Um, so there, I'm really big into either selling before you actually create something or doing your bare bones MVP, your minimal viable product. So you don't waste all this time on something, only you launch it and realize that you got it wrong. Yeah. Because your first assumptions are never going to be right oh, yeah. as to what's going to sell. Right. And I liked what you said of kind of like the bare bones product is more to see if it's even worth kind of expanding on. And it's more just giving people the the littlest bit of a sampler to see if it's even worth anyone's interest. I'm curious, have you ever had any products or businesses that you tried to start that really didn't take off? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any like um, good stories of like maybe what you learned and why you don't think they took off the way you wanted them to? Oh, I feel like every business I start is like that. Um, but, you know, my the very first company I started, my expectations for how long it would take to grow were seriously misguided. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a lot the truth is a lot of businesses, it takes five years before the founder is even pulling in a an income. Um, this is less so for like service-based businesses. Um, but even service-based businesses can be that way. It's definitely investment upfront. But product-based businesses, the time it takes to actually create the product and market it and then break even and then make a profit is is pretty lengthy. So to expect to do that in the first two years is kind of unrealistic. Um, so that's one learning is that you just have to have a really extended runway and have that level of patience mm -hmm. to have it pay off. Yeah. And I think, well, I, this is kind of a follow-up to that, but have you ever seen, and I know I, I experience this a ton with just like other artists or whoever, and they just have tons of followers, tons of, they're getting tons of reception. Do you ever kind of feel envious of other brands 
kind of in the same space as you and how have you kind of dealt with that envy if you have ever experienced it of like kind of being jealous yeah. of the top dog yeah definitely um i really struggle with like feelings of failure because i'm not you know i don't have <clears throat> 20,000 Instagram followers. <laughs> I'm like about to break a thousand. It's really my Instagram game is just, I haven't put in the consistent dedication to it. And I don't do, I don't participate in programs where it's like you build a following really quickly. Um, <clears throat> so there is definitely a level of, wow, they, they really exploded all overnight and how come I'm not like that? But when I usually, usually when I dig into the stories, it's like, actually they had a whole decade of trial and error, like beyond me didn't explode for, I don't know, 10 years or so. It was founded an impressively long time ago. <laughs> And um, there's so many food brands that are that way. I don't know how it is for like other industries. I think in technology, <clears throat> it can explode much faster. But when it comes to food, it's it's a pretty long runway for brands. Um, and so I just remember, I just remind myself, you know, it's not really about how my journey stacks up to other people. It's more about how I feel, like how my journey supports the um, legacy I want to live on the earth. And if I keep it more individual, then it's easier because it's really easy to go online and start looking at all the wins and successes from my peers. And that's, you know, all we do is post our wins. It's not like we're going to, I'm going to post on LinkedIn, like, Oh, I lost out on a sale today. But seriously, every single day I hear a no from someone somewhere. I'm like, I don't want to hear no's. I want to hear more yeses. And then I go on LinkedIn and my people are winning all over the place. But it's just not um, a holistic picture, of course, of what's going on. And, you know, people think I'm a lot more successful than I really am just because of what I post on LinkedIn. You know, yeah. I only celebrate my wins. I don't yeah. mourn my losses on social media. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It def I mean, social media is definitely an unbalanced channel for that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. As, as we're kind of getting closer to the end of this, I want to touch on one more topic and then I'll have one final question that I like to end all the interviews on. But this, this final topic I want to cover is networking. And you mentioned at one point how a lot of the other cricket protein brands, you're trying to kind of stick together because it's not you versus them. It's you guys are all together and you're kind of fighting the, the bigger established, um, you know, industrial meat, uh, pea protein, soy protein, kind of those, uh, established protein powders. So networking in that area of like other protein powders and then networking in the local area of St. Louis, um, what has been your experience with networking? Cause I, I, and I say that specifically knowing that you kind of partnered up with feel state who, you know, I just had Corey on for an interview and I, um, I thought that was such a creative kind of collaboration of, you know, 
medical marijuana and, you know, cricket protein powder. So I think, have you ever kind of discovered any contacts where you're like, I, we can collaborate in an interesting way? Those yeah, the interesting, the interesting thing about the hemp and marijuana industry is, are that um, our target audiences overlap in a surprising number of ways. So that's why it was such a easy collaboration because, um, you know, the early adapters of crickets are kind of out there. <laughs> uh so I love networking. Um, this past year has been really hard because my inner extrovert is withering away. But net networking for me has been really powerful in so many ways because it, it just opens the doors to things and ideas that you have never considered before. Um, so I, I think it's it's great to do that. Um, I know I've had like tons of amazing things that have come through networking. And I'm thinking of, well, the most recent example was when I was trying to get mightycricket.com. You know, I've been trying to get it for like three years and it's kept getting renewed every time it was up for expiration. So finally, I was like, well, for one thing, um, the, the owner didn't put their identity on GoDaddy, you know, it, it was hidden. So I couldn't just contact them. But to contact GoDaddy to contact them cost me 130 bucks. And I didn't want to pay $130 just to have the privilege to find out how much I had to pay. And then I had to pay to GoDaddy a commission on top of that. And I was expecting, you know, it would, they would want at least $3,000 for the domain. And, you know, that's... It was just, I, I didn't want that bad. <laughs> but finally, um, you know, so many people think mightycricket.co is a typo where they'll accidentally email me and just put .com because it's so common. So I realized, you know, I'll just find a domain, GoDaddy go domain broker on LinkedIn. I found someone and connected with him and said, hey, I'm trying to get .com. Come. And so he reached out to the guy and was like, yeah, he knows of you. He's willing to accept offers. Let's put in an aggressive offer. And I was like, mm, nah, I don't really want to buy it. I, I just want to have it. <laughs> so then I had this idea to record a video addressed to the owner of mightycricket.com. And so that's how I started out. And it was about a I don't know, three minute video where I explained who I was and what I was trying to achieve. And, you know, can I offer you like a hundred bucks? I know it's not a whole lot. And I sent it to the GoDaddy guy. He forwarded it to the owner and then the owner contacted me directly and just gave it to me as a gift. Like I didn't want anything for it. And I couldn't believe it. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And it was, you know, thanks to my new network of this domain broker. So that's one way in which, you know, connections can really help you out. Yeah, that's such a great story. That's such a incentive to network more because there's so many serendipitous situations like that. I think when it, when it comes to networking, 
Um, so I'm glad. Thank you for talking on that. Um, as a final question, I want to know, what are you intensely curious about at this stage in your life? Oh, that's a really great one. Um, I'm curious about how we can use GMOs for good. <laughs> GMOs have such a bad rap, but like modifying organisms, it's we we've been doing cultivating food forever and and finding stronger strands. So I, I'd like to learn more about how we can use GMOs to actually make our environment stronger and healthier and produce more food. Um, but without having the adverse effects that people who are against GMOs are all in heat about. Mm -hmm. So kind of finding that, that balance where everyone's satisfied with the solution and it helps the world. Yeah, learning more about the technology in the first place because, you know, a lot of anti-GMO people really don't know even how it works. And I, I don't really know how it works. So I'm on an investigation right now to kind of get to the root of that because it's such a question. It's like GMOs help us produce more food and we need to produce more food, but is it causing harm? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I need to learn more. Yeah. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. You had so many great insights. And I hope that anyone who's listening, who's gotten to this point, will check out your website. It's still currently Mighty Cricket. Is it .com or .co? I haven't made the switch yet. Okay. It's on my to-do list. All right. So for now, <laughs> but it's .co. When it is, yeah. And yeah. I'll change when it. I'll, I'll double it. check. Um, but yeah, so find that. Try some crickets. Um, try the protein powder. Try the oatmeal, just try it. And I think, um, you'll be doing yourself a favor. You'll be doing the world a favor and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, so yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Hey guys, I've really fallen in love with the medium of podcasting and I finally feel comfortable to where I want to ask for your support. So in the description and in all of the descriptions following this episode, I'm going to start putting a link for a spot for you to donate a small monthly amount of either a buck, five bucks, or ten bucks a month. Now this money is going to help the podcast grow. It's going to show me that this is worth my time. And because this is for creators, by a creator, I would hope that you can see that I'm doing this so I can sustain the act of creating. So if you really like this podcast, if you want to support the show, go down in the description click the link to chip in a small amount to support the show. Thanks. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.